Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Well, small Colleges in the United States are really facing a tough time. Dwindling enrollment is really putting a pressure on the finances, and now it's actually spilling over into the credit markets. To get the latest, we welcome Amanda Albright, municipal bond reporter for Bloomberg News. She joins us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Amanda, really interesting story uh, on the Bloomberg Terminal today. Give us a sense of what is happening with some of these smaller private uh, colleges and, and how it's impacting uh, the credit markets. Yeah, so in the muni market, um, the troubles of small private colleges have kind of been talked about for years. Um, but lately, we're really seeing that kind of come to a head. Um, there was a bankruptcy by the College of New Rochelle um, that a lot of people were watching just to kind of see how the recoveries would fare. Um, you know, it's still kind of not for, for certain yet, but it doesn't look too good for bondholders, even though the, the college was sitting on some really valuable real estate. Amanda, can you just set the scene for us why private colleges are struggling so much right now? Sure. So there's a lot of different factors going on, but I think enrollment and demographics are what people point to. So basically, the number of high school graduates is kind of in this flatlining mode. Um, and there are forecasts that, you know, in 2026, after that, um, it will actually start declining. So in regions in the Northeast and the Midwest, where there are a lot of um, small liberal, art, liberal arts schools, um, that they'll have to start competing for students, and that could actually cause more enrollment declines. But this isn't just a, this is not just a demographics issue. This is also a people realizing that paying, you know, $200,000 for four years in college doesn't always pay off and ends up leading, like leaving you with a ton of debt. I mean, isn't that a big part of it too? And people are just choosing not to do it? Absolutely. I think a lot of students, you know, there's a lot of headlines about the student loan debt crisis that we're in. Um, and, you know, people are kind of rethinking the value of a, a small private school. Um, and, you know, the other part of it is that, you know, these small colleges, in order to kind of have the really nice liberal arts environment, you have to spend a lot to get of that, you know, small classroom sizes, stuff like that. So expenses are really becoming a problem for these institutions too. So, so how typical is it for a U.S. college or university to actually tap the municipal bond market? Is that part of most you know, colleges and universities, capital structure balance sheet? It's incredibly common. And I think that's what's so interesting about this is, you know, a decade ago, maybe it would be unthinkable that we would be in the situation that we're in because, you know, the number of high school graduates was increasing so much. Um, so private colleges, you know, took on debt for dorms, athletic buildings, classrooms. Um, and now, you know, they're kind of dealing with these emptier dorm rooms, emptier classrooms. And so um, it's kind of coming back to bite them. How much is this because of immigration or how much U.S. colleges are attracting foreign students? That's definitely part of it. And I think that's something that's affecting even public institutions, even really elite colleges. That's something that is really, really interesting to keep an eye on, you know, the next few years, because, you know, ratings companies have even been talking about, you know, the, the immigration issue and just kind of how international students are being deterred. What's the so the. New Rochelle, they filed for bankruptcy? Yes. Okay, so do we have any sense, is there any history as to the kind of recovery rates that you typically get in these types of bankruptcies? Yeah, so the College of New Rochelle bonds, um, they're trading around 40 cents on the dollar. Um, there was a, a bankruptcy by Dowling College in Long Island, um, and bondholders recovered an average of about 17%, so that kind of gives you an idea. Um, you know, with th these situations, there's not a ton of debt at, at play, but, you know, when you have... 
1700 private colleges in the U.S. and, you know, a lot of them took on bonds. That's something that I think is very concerning to bondholders. Are there any estimates how many of these colleges will have to merge or close entirely uh, to sort of make this make sense in terms of how many colleges there are? It's, it's interesting because there's been forecasts all over the place about closures and mergers. Um, and what's interesting is that in both cases, there are impediments to both. So for closures, alums will often step in and do fundraising. So that can that has prevented some closures from actually happening. And that's why closures are still so rare is that, you know, it's really painful for colleges to close. And when it comes to mergers, um, you know, it's kind of like a company merger, only there's even more emotions at play because, you know, you have alums who are worried about, you know, losing the identity of their school. Um, you also have the financials of colleges, you know, can Two colleges make it work if both of them are dealing with the same, you know, poor financial outlook. So that's kind of why both are very rare, but everyone is kind of saying, you know, that they expect it to continue and, and, and increase. Amanda Albright, thank you so much. Really interesting story. Amanda Albright is municipal bond reporter for Bloomberg News. It is a historic day in Washington, D.C. as the House debates uh, the Trump impeachment guidelines currently and uh, is poised for a vote on the impeachment uh, proceedings. A lot of people are perhaps shrugging this off as feeling sort of inevitable. But here with us, I'm so pleased to say, who has the historical reference of 20 years in public service, including working in all three branches of the federal government, is Chris Liu, senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center uh, which studies the presidency. He's also a former senior White House aide to President Obama. Chris, so good uh, to have you. Can you paint today in a historic sort of picture to understand the importance, even if people sort of shrug it off as somewhat inevitable? It will be passed by the House and shot down by the Senate. Yeah, no, I mean, it's exactly right. Whether you think this is a good idea or not a good idea, it's a historic moment. Uh, the President Trump is set to be only the third president ever impeached. There was a fourth, uh, Richard Nixon, who didn't quite even make it to this point before he resigned. And so, you know, what what is being discussed today and, and inevitably how the Senate trial uh, goes, we'll, we'll be setting guardrails for future presidencies in a good or bad way. And so, look, um, you know, politics um, is what this is all about. Uh, I mean, I don't mean that in a bad way, but uh, we always think about this in political terms. But this is really a historical thing that will be studied uh, for many years after this. So, Chris, let's fast forward a little bit. Let's uh, I'm kind of making the assumption that the, the House yeah. will vote to impeach today. We get to the Senate and it appears like the Republicans are the, the, the lead, leadership, uh, Mitch McConnell, Lindsey Graham and so on, are coordinating with the White House and, and maybe not even going to call any witnesses. How right. common or unusual is that? Well, I, look, I don't think the coordination uh, is uncommon. I think the you know, openly bragging about the coordination, uh, which is what the uh, Mitch McConnell is saying, as well as Lindsey Graham saying, look, I, I'm not even going to try to be fair. Um, you know, a lot of people have analogized the senators to jurors. They're kind of like jurors, but they're kind of like judges as well. And I think what you've seen in previous impeachments um, is at least senators kind of at least saying, uh, you know, we're going to try to objectively look at the facts. And I think what's less clear here is how that tr Senate trial is going to go down, because ultimately it's it's up to a majority of senators as to whether they want to call additional witnesses or simply rest on the record that was developed in the House. 
So given what you were talking about, that this impeachment proceeding will set guardrails in a way and guidelines for future presidencies, what are you watching in terms of the developments today and the future ones that are expected in the Senate uh, that will give us a sense of how this is going? Well, you know, uh, it is interesting. The the most recent example we have is obviously the Clinton impeachment, which dealt with both perjury and obstruction of justice. And so uh, a majority of the House impeached President Clinton on that. Again, it was largely a partisan vote. So if that's sort of the floor of what qualifies as an impeachable offense, uh, and then you go back to the Watergate impeachment, where, again, it was abuse um, abuse of process, abuse of power, I'm sorry, obstruction of justice, obstruction of Congress, that was sort of at a different level. You know, you probably put the Trump impeachment probably closer to Watergate than to Clinton. Uh, But the fact that, um, you know, uh, many of the same people who voted for the Clinton impeachment will now vote against the Trump impeachment does leave you sort of scratching your head as to how you can uh, rationalize these things intellectually. So, Chris, there's been some reporting that, you know, behind closed doors, many Republicans say, you know, we're not really supportive of President Trump, uh, his administration, many of his policies. But, you you know, we got to support him here. Are you surprised that we haven't had any Republicans or any meaningful number of Republicans come out against Trump? And will we see it in maybe today's vote or in the Senate? Well, it is sort of interesting. I mean, I think we will expect to see uh, today. Uh, essentially three members of Congress break from their parties. Um, Justin Amash, formerly a Republican, has already switched to an independent. Uh, Jeff Andrew, a Democrat, uh, will vote against impeachment and then leave his party. So essentially, of the three people who will vote against impeachment, two have had to leave their party. Uh, contrast that with Clinton. There was probably you know, a half dozen to a dozen members on either side who, who sort of flipped votes. And I think in large measure, it reflects the partisanship um, that we have in this country right now. Um, you know, people famously remember the Watergate moment when um, both House and Senate Republican leaders went to Richard Nixon and said, look, we, we don't um, we can't condone your behavior. We don't have the support. If you don't resign, we're going to impeach you. You know, that was 45 years ago. You can't really imagine that kind of uh, conduct um, or by, by uh, Republican leaders in this current climate. I'm, I'm trying to understand that, you know, it's really important that you mention that this is a really partisan issue. And that's part of the reason why uh, sort of there's this image being painted that there's an apathy about the proceedings. It's just sort of political theater. But can you uh, sort of paint this also in terms of how unusual it is? Or is this common? I mean, was the Nixon impeachment also uh, viewed as very much of just a partisan issue? Yeah, I, you know, there's a couple ways to look at it. One is based on public opinion polls. You know, right now, you know, it's depending on which poll you look at, about 46 to 54 percent of the American public believes that President Trump should be impeached. That's significantly higher than any than what was the case in Clinton, where um, support for impeachment never really crossed 40 percent. And really, in the Nixon impeachment, uh, it only crossed that mark at the very end, about the month before he finally resigned. Uh, did support for impeachment cross 50 percent? So, you know, and, and I think in some measure reflects that these charges against President Trump are easy to understand, and people can sort of make their assessment one way or another whether it's improper. But I think it also reflects the partisan nature of our country right now. We are a 50-50 country. And what's unfortunate here is that this is a historic moment. This is one of the most 
solemn responsibilities that a member of Congress can undergo. And for many of these members of Congress, this will be the most consequential vote that they will take in Congress. And yet everything is sort of being seen through a partisan political lens instead of an impartial examination of the facts and law, which is I don't expect to see much of that on the House floor today. I'm hoping when we get to the Senate, we're able to do a little bit of that. Hey, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate your insight here into what is, again, as you suggested uh, and characterized as a historic day. Chris Liu is a senior fellow at the University of Virginia Miller Center, which studies the presidency. He's also a former senior White House aide to President Obama. So uh, interesting getting Chris's well-informed comments about the process, about the likelihood of how this will proceed as we make the vote today through uh, the House uh, and then we get uh, to the Senate. Uh, So we will have all of that uh, for you coming up. FedEx shares at not having a particularly boring day, but not having a good day by any means, shares down more than 10% after giving guidance uh, that was absolutely slaughtered by Wall Street analysts. Joining us now to talk about what actually went wrong here is Satish Jindal. He's president of SJ Consulting. Satish, I just want to start with the sort of elephant in the room. How much does this stem from Amazon.com telling some of its third-party businesses and clients that they cannot ship with FedEx? Practically none. How's that? Okay, great. I'm glad that we've established that. So what was the main driver here? The main drivers, there are two structural issues taking place. And in both the express business, domestically in the U.S., and in the ground business, which are the two major drivers of revenue and profitability for the company. And in the express business, the market has been declining practically. It's flat over the last 14 years because not too many people are shipping packages across the country. They don't need express. So they've got, in my view, too many aircrafts. They could bring more of them down. And as a reference, UPS handles as many parcels in express network as FedEx while doing it with fewer aircraft because they have an integrated network. And during the same last 15 years, while express volume has been practically flat, 1% increase, ground has increased 250%, and yet FedEx has not adjusted structurally to handling it in that manner. What... What? Why are they not, you know, making that change? When I think of, you know, moving packages around, I think of FedEx. I mean, they kind of created this whole industry, this whole business. What are they missing here? Well, you're correct. They created the express industry. And absolutely, Fred Smith is a legend in our industry. But that was for the express service that started 40 years ago. The parcel and the industry for express documents also is absolutely 180 degrees turned around over these years. Now everything is moving in short distance and in ground, and then it is not business to business. The business to consumer is growing at two, three times the rate of business to business, and they fail to recognize the changes driven by e-commerce that was resulting in lower yield due to lighter weight and shorter zones, and they don't comment about paying attention to it till March of 2019. 
Satish, this is a, you make a really important point, which is perhaps they should be reducing assets and reducing investment rather than increasing it. Am I reading that correctly? Because it comes at a time of them increasing investment across a whole host of different areas. You are absolutely spot on. You should be a financial analyst oh. because they talk oh, about boy, here we having <laughs> they, they talk about having a capex of five point nine billion dollars in this fiscal year, next fiscal year, and the one after that, and they're buying a lot of aircraft. They should be shrinking their capex. They should not be buying new aircrafts. Existing aircrafts don't have to be retired because they don't need so many aircraft, and they could retire them and put it on the ground and do it at a lower cost and invest in the ground network. And here's another thing that has been overlooked. The ground business, quarter over quarter, compared to last year, increased revenue by $173 million. But the purchase transportation cost went up by 219 Salary and wages went up by 80 So they went up by $300 million in cost to get extra $170 million in revenue. That, uh, that is a structural issue that will get corrected, but it won't happen in one quarter. It will be at least three quarters to a year before they get that. But they needed to do it. Satish, real, real quickly, was it a good move to kind of sever business with Amazon? It just seems odd to me. My view is that it, they should have been able to make money handling that business. And if they chose not to, it should have never become an element to be shared in the public. should have never gotten any ink in the media. And now they did that. So Amazon did what they did last couple of days and it will be back and forth and that isn't healthy for either party. Satish uh, Jindal, thank you so much for joining us. Satish Jindal is the president of SJ Consulting, uh, joining us here to talk about uh, FedEx. Again, the stock down about 10% uh, on weaker than expected guidance going forward, uh, citing weaker global trade and also probably some of the issues uh, with Amazon.com walking away from that business. All right, let's take stock of 2019. The S&P up about 27%. Investment-grade bonds up about 14%. Even municipal bonds had a stellar year, up over 7%. Let's talk about the municipal bond market. We welcome Jeff Berger, Senior Portfolio Manager for U.S. Municipal Bond Strategies at Mellon Investments, based in Boston, but joining us here in our Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Jeff, give us a sense about the muni performance in 2019. What drove it? Thanks for having me. The performance in municipals really across the curve was stellar in 2019. And precisely to answer your question, what drove it? If you look at technical, fundamental, and valuation factors in our market, the one that really stands out are technical factors. Technical factors meaning really supply and demand in our market. And the demand really was unprecedented in 2019, particularly from U.S. retail investors. In fact, the highest on record since really uh, records of municipal mutual fund inflows began in 1992. In no year have we seen more interest in this asset class than we saw in 2019. So technical factors drove the gains. I'm wondering about the potential risks because I tend to be a killjoy, but also because <laughs> uh, we were just talking to Amanda Albright from Bloomberg News about the fact that private colleges are, are 
going to be defaulting on their debt. Do you view this market as riskier or do you view it as uh, a place to just keep on plowing in because the technicals are going to continue being good? Yes. No, that's that's a really on point question in the sense that anytime you see a market with the type of stellar demand that you've seen in 2019, I think it, as prudent investment managers like we are at Mellon looking at what's driven this, you always have to ask the question, what could go wrong? What could change? And and it's really a probabilistic type analysis. And so if you look at the uh, what could change and what's the probability of that changing, I would say the probability of it is low. And what that change could be would be a reversal of, of all these flows. It's really, in my opinion, and the team's opinion, not, not so much a credit issue per se. It's whether the retail demand for this asset class were to change for, for any number of reasons. We don't think those reasons are in place right now. Um, again, really looking at what's driven that retail inflow into our market, it has a lot to do with the Tax Cut and Job Act. It has to do with the fact that state and local taxes being capped at $10,000 as the maximum you could deduct from your federal tax liability. Tell me about it. Tell me about it. <laughs> has driven a lot of people in. How do you it's, feel about that? <laughs> <laughs> and so it's our opinion that, that that demand and the reason for that demand is not likely to abate anytime soon. So 2020 is an election year. How do municipal, and there's gonna be a lot of talk about tax policy and lots of other things. How do municipals typically perform in, a, in an election year? Sure, so when we think about elections and the impact on the municipal bond market, there are a number of factors that we consider. The first is, well, typically, uh, Come, come election season, a number of ballots are on, on the referendum or initiative process to say, do we want to issue more debt as a local community? So we're going to be paying attention to how much debt is on the ballot and how much of it gets approved this November. By and large, though, this market is well capable of absorbing uh, more supply. So that, in terms of hierarchy, is not the number one concern. What we also are paying attention to are the implications from tax policy, whether it's the re-election of the president or a Democrat coming into power. Under both scenarios, we're of the mindset currently that the tax policy, you've seen Donald Trump's tax policy with the salt cap, and most of the Democrats are proposing some uh, tax policy change, meaning tax increase. Both of those generally are good for, for the market. And the final piece we're paying attention to is whether there's an increased probability of a federal infrastructure bill. Um, post-election. There's arguments really? that- you're Really? You really? You think there's any chance of that? Come po on. Post-election. 2020. I, we're talking 2020? We're I, talking I, next year? I, we're going to be doing infrastructure next year? All well, right. we, we, we certainly <laughs> desperately need it. Uh, so it's uh, it, maybe it's aspirational in the sense that- as Aspirational a, <laughs> uh, infrastructure bill. Yes, go on. It's at the gateway tunnel right across the oh, wow. <laughs> Literally, you this is like, you love muni bonds. <laughs> I do. Because you just have your pet project. Hey, I just please. flew through LaGuardia this morning, okay, and, and you know, that's great. What's yeah. going on there? I mean, LaGuardia, it's, is it though? It is. What's wrong I, with the cabs? It's ridiculous. So I took Uber, so I did not have oh, to deal with it. I'm oh. learning. So we evolve as, as consumers, <laughs> and I've learned that the tax- line can be a little long. Oh, all right. Uh, one question, uh, just quickly to wrap it up here. What about foreign investment? We've seen an increase there. What are you expecting on that front? Absolutely. I think foreign investors is probably one of the most underreported stories uh, in our market in, in the sense that what you're seeing across the globe is a demand for this asset class driven by just low sovereign yields across the world. With a third of the world at sub-zero rates, you're seeing new buyers into this asset class. And, and what gets us most excited is Global investors really for the first time are recognizing the underappreciation, the undervalue of this market, the, the opportunities and municipals are being recognized across the globe. And you're seeing that now with tremendous flow from both Europe and Asia.
All right. And before we let you go, Jeff, what project, what's your number one infrastructure pet project that you would push for? What I would push for? Oh, gosh. So I'm a Boston person. So I'm going to root. You already had the big dig. Yeah, but you know, I'm I'm also green, and so I think uh, let's let's move away from the the big dig and let's really work on public transportation. I think our T, uh, the MBTA in Boston, can could be improved. Jeff Berger, who is green. Jeff Berger, senior <laughs> portfolio manager for U.S. Municipal Bond Strategies at Mellon Investments, based in Boston. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.